Hi, this is Skip Stewart, Vice President and Chief Improvement Officer with Baptist Memorial Healthcare with another episode of Connecting the Dots podcast. Hey everybody, I'm HF Mason. I'm a General Surgeon and Chief Medical Officer at Baptist Memorial Hospital DeSoto. And hey everybody, I'm Jake Lancaster. I'm an internal medicine physician and the Chief Medical Information Officer for the Baptist System. Well, today we are so incredibly honored to have Dr. Ryan Grant from Bory Health. Dr. Grant, would you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and Bory Health? Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, neurosurgeon by training, uh, trained at uh, Yale University, and then most recently was at Geisinger Medical Center, uh, being onboarded to be their uh, second uh, spine neurosurgeon for the COE program for Walmart's Lowe's McKesson Direct Contracting Program. Uh, serial entrepreneur, uh, currently have migrated my practice to be full-time CEO at uh, Bori Health, which is an integrated musculoskeletal offering. Once again, thank you very much for being here. And and you you spoke to our Sophie group a few months back, and um, you told us a little bit about Bori Health, and and I just you know I actually found it was really fascinating. And 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 to our listeners, tell us a little bit about what Vori Health actually is, if you don't mind. Of course. Uh, the best way to think about us is if you're familiar with a monogram or strive or cricket health in the kidney space, but for the musculoskeletal space. And so we are a full stack medical practice who employs uh, physical medicine physicians, sports medicine physicians, nurse practitioners, uh, physician associates, nurses, health coaches, social workers, physical therapists, registered dietitians, who are actually in true evidence-based practice teams. Um, so yeah, another word for that would be integrated practice units, um, but trying to disrupt uh, what you normally find in a multi-specialty group is everybody's there, but the, tend that they, the, the chance that they actually do care together is pretty low. Um, the chance that they actually communicate each, with each other in a typical multi-specialty group is usually also pretty low. It's really no different than usually a food court inside of an airport, everybody's there sharing overhead, but not actually interacting with each other the way that you would want for a patient. And beyond evidence-based medicine, there's heavy shared decision-making. And so the way I was trained, the way we trained our residents, the way that we still train most people across the planet is very heavy paternalism. It's no fault of anybody. That's just how the system's set up. Go on rounds with an average physician across the planet. Go to the ICU. Oh, that's the 52-year-old with COVID. That's the 50-year-old ruptured aneurysm. That's the uh, X, Y, and Z. Well, what's their name? How are they handling this? How's the family? It's, those are things that we tend to overlook, and not because we're bad people. That's just sort of how we've trained. Um, it's how we write notes. It's, a, it's an age with a bunch of diseases. And really, the emotional states and mindsets of folks tends to be secondary, unfortunately. And when you think about um, pain, if no one, if someone doesn't have a neurological deficit, meaning they're not going paralyzed, they're not getting weak, how bad somebody's pain is is really, well, they're going to tell us. Is it bad enough that it in, uh, interferes with your life? And really start to put the paradigm shift on just because somebody has pain doesn't mean they need surgery. Needs actually should be flipped. Do your wrinkles on your face bother you enough to consider a facelift? That's a very personal decision. Does your pain bother you enough to consider surgery, Johnny? 
It's, and so people without neurological deficits really start to flip the conversation because when you think about how medicine's practiced, 80, 85% of people will get better through an integrated musculoskeletal uh, program for back, neck, hip, or knee. The 15 or 20% of people who don't meet their goals, the knee-jerk reaction across the planet is order an MRI, order an X-ray. Well, what's, what are those images for if they don't have a neurological deficit or you're concerned for something rare like cancer, which is rare? Well, those are designed to look for surgical targets or something more invasive. So mm -hmm. what are we actually going to do with that data? Exactly, it should be pulling the patient and Johnny. You didn't, reach, you didn't reach your goals. Next step would be to obtain an image of your lower back to look for potential surgical targets, something more invasive or injection targets, et cetera, et cetera. What do you actually think about that as a human being? Our experience, 20 to 25% of people will say, well, I'm not where I want to be, but I'm definitely not bad enough to be cut open or have an injection. So why do we scan those people? Because we don't talk to people that way. And so there's multiple... Uh, ways when you think about if it was really your mom, dad, spouse, kid, what do they really want? It's, so that's how we think about it. Sure. Well, and, and also, Vori Health is not a it's not a traditional brick and mortar type practice. It, it's it's it has a virtual platform. Is that right? Right. We're virtual first. Um, we originally were going to build real estate plus virtual. This was pre-COVID, and then COVID hit. And then there's been a rise of acceptance of virtual care and telemedicine. So actually shifted resources to be heavy virtual. With some of our primary care partners, we park physical therapists inside their real estate and then also wrap around these integrated services with them. Reason for that is uh, not all, but many primary care providers, if they're not trained in sports medicine, find uh, musculoskeletal sometimes it'd be a time sink. Um, I don't have enough time with the patient. I'm on the hook for ordering their imaging, care navigating them, ordering their evidence-based, non-opiate-based uh, medications, getting them to physical therapy. Let's be honest, my, my surgical colleagues and I across the planet, the chance we will preoperative risk stratify our own patient is close to zero. So we ask the PCP to do that. Um, and then post-operatively take care of patients after 10 to 14 days, we usually cut the patient off and then push it back onto the primary care provider to resume care. And so the primary care provider, whether family medicine, internal medicine is on a hook for many parts of the path. And then someone who's in pain gonna be a little bit more demanding or more aggressive because they hurt. And so it sometimes it's like angry customer service. And so that is sometimes a heavy dissatisfier to some primary care providers. And so as with an integrated care team who was trained and designed to be a true partner with the primary care provider is here to help you take care of the patient, can do all of these things, all of those different pathways we can do. You can be as involved or as not involved as you wish, and we will keep you updated regardless. Um, you can go further with um, value-based models, meaning risk-based models or people who where it feeds right to the bottom line. If you actually do more sophisticated evidence-based care, you can still drive value on fee-for-service. Um, you just can't go as far because the economic models don't go as far. So you're talking earlier about how, you know, our healthcare delivery system right now is very fragmented. And I know one of the frustrating things about being a patient, especially, you know, maybe somebody with back pain, if you're going to go see your PCP, one, you got to take time off work to make that appointment. Then if the 
PCP was going to recommend physical therapy. Well, you're probably going to need to have more time to go to the physical therapist. Then if you're going to have any imaging, um, you're going to have to take more time to do that. And then if you refer to a, uh, another specialist, um, you know, then again, you got to take more time off work. And, you know, this can be by the time you get to the definitive therapy for your condition, you can be months down the line and in pain the entire time. How does your model and the integrated delivery model um, help kind of improve that fragmentation and that patient experience? That's a great question is by putting everything you need um, short of imaging and surgery under one umbrella. Um, so you can see all those providers. So, for example, um, a piece, a primary care provider refers to us. Um, first visit would be to actually see a health coach first. Reset the scene. Uh, well, what are you missing in your life? That the pain is interfering with. Well, I want to walk a mile with my kids, or I can't do this, or I want to walk around the grocery store, whatever the, I want to run a marathon, like whatever that goal is, is to reframe people's mindset is not a small nuance. The analogy would be take an athlete. Do you focus the athlete on all the practices they have to do to the point of exhaustion where they, they contemplate quitting the team? Or do you focus the athlete on the gold medal in the championship? Take the college student. Do you focus the college student on your experience is going to be you're not living with mom and dad anymore. It's going to meet all these people, learn all these things, get a diploma, look at all the job opportunities, or go to graduate school or professional school after. It's going to be amazing. Or do you focus the college student on your, your experiences to be late nights, term papers, um, stress about finances, stress about failing out of school, and stress about disappointing mom and dad? Where do you focus people is not a small nuance in terms of mindset. What do we tend to do with our patients? Focus them on their pain. How bad your pain today? What about time? What about tomorrow? What about now? And really have you focused on the negatives. Tracking pain is important. But what is the person actually trying to accomplish in their life? Then actually seeing a clinician. So physical medicine physician, uh, nurse practitioner. In between fill out patient report outcomes. You can do about 95% of the, of the exam virtually. For those who haven't done much virtual care, for some patients they actually find it more engaging. Because it's a more active. The clinician has to be more active at mirror and help them be more creative to actually get the information they need versus a typical exam room uh, being very passive where you just move the patient on their own and they're less they're less actively involved and then see a physical therapist in sequence. So see all three of those providers in the same setting in sequence as, as a truth care team. You can't take care of everybody virtually. So this is really catering towards people who have tech. So phones, tablets. Computer for those who don't have access to tech. Um, it's 1 of the reasons we park physical therapists inside some of our primary care providers real estate. And then for those who still uh, can't drive enough value to, uh, we will look to operationalize home visits and then from there. Continuously partner with folks on the ground because there still is a need for on the ground care. Virtual care doesn't replace care and I think the future really is. One day, just calling it care. So, when Amazon first came out or eBay, oh, look at your shopping online, it's this completely different thing. Now it's just, well, where do you shop? Did you go to the store? Did you order it online? Did you order it from your phone? Like, it's just shopping. And that um, segregation has gone away in people's mindset. People still segregate, well, is it in person care or is it virtual care? Eventually, see a world is just care. Did you get care on your Peloton, on your phone, in an office, at your house? You just got care. 
and that that designation will start to will change but the mindset of most people isn't quite there yet but i think that you'll see the same thing happen that you see with shopping did amazon replace all the shopping across the planet no but it certainly changed things it gave people more convenience more access but there's still a need for in-person shopping and so you'll still see that type of dynamic with care yeah, that's, that's really, it's really fascinating and, and, and very innovative and, and talking about innovation. How, how did you come up with this idea? Was, was it, was it born out of frustration? I, I can imagine as a neurosurgeon, you know, seeing these back pain, back pain, back pain, back pain, day in and day out. And, and the vast majority of the ones that you see don't need surgery. Did, was that part of it or, or, or how, how did this idea come to you yeah it's uh, if you talk to one of my seed investors something this was something i brought up with him many many years ago when i was building my other company but um, um i was still in training back then and then um, got more and more interested in doing this again um as we start to practice more and more of most people don't quote need surgery and even those who meet criteria for surgery many don't want it so there still is a need for surgery um, surgery has its has its role, and when it makes sense, you want it to be done in the most cost efficient, best quality outcomes you can get. Um, but there is um, a certain uh, uh, real unnecessary surgical rate that does occur across the planet. It's not picking on any individual group. This is a systemic issue. And as you start to think, like just sitting in your own clinic, if that was my mom or my dad or my brother, would I really want to? take them through surgery. Like really just like think about each patient is like, all right, this is my family member. That's my cousin, my aunt, my uncle. What would I try to do for all of them? Surgery be the absolute, absolute last resort. Nothing else has worked. And still, and then still try to talk them out of it because there's a complication rate that happens with surgery. Some people get hurt. Uh, something that people don't talk about um, is it's flying on an airplane. There's a small chance that your airplane crashes. It's not high, but there is, there is a small complication rate of, and, um, and really for people who only have pain, not to minimize how uncomfortable it is, really needs to be heavily their, their choice and not feeling across the country or the planet, that that's actually what occurs. It's still way too heavy paternalistic of us as the surgical community saying, well, you're quote bone on bone, so you should get a knee replacement. Well, what's the evidence to actually replace a knee if you're bone on bone? Well, if there's an imaging correlate plus a symptomatic patient, imaging on its own for arthritic changes, just arthritis, it's like, it gets back to the wrinkles on your face. Does, do the wrinkles on your face bother you enough to have a facelift? And yeah, there's gonna get more wrinkles as you age, you're gonna get more arthritis as you age. And so arthritis in isolation um, I do think we've done a bit of a disservice um, towards the population by calling things abnormal radiology findings. Well, if you've got disc bulges everywhere and you're 75 years old, it's like, there's nothing abnormal about that. It's like, if you don't have any disc bulges, that's amazing. <laughs> Just like if you're 75 with no gray hair, that's amazing. And if you're 75 with no wrinkles, <laughs> that's amazing. That's unusual. Yeah, I, re and, I remember. When I was in medical school at the VA, Jake, I was a fourth year and, and one of our uh, orthopedic attendings, he would put up, you know, just plain films of lumbar x-rays. 
you know, some look pristine, they look normal. Others had osteophytes and bridging osteophytes and he'd say, okay, tell me which ones are having back pain. And it was about like flipping a coin. I mean, you couldn't tell. I mean, you, yeah. you'd obviously point to the x-ray that looked horrible and he'd say, no, no back pain at all. This is a guy that has back pain. So that's really interesting. Yeah, and the um, and the literature supports that is the correlation between arthritic imaging findings and pain. To fill an auditorium full of people who are on the floor crying in pain with minimal imaging findings, and you can fill an auditorium full of people with severe stenosis and arthritis and all sorts of changes who play golf every day. And so, really, it's for not to minimize pain again. It's a, it's the person's living with it is what is their expectations, quality of life, and what are they looking for to meet their goals to really consider surgery? Um, um, and don't get me wrong, love operating. It's like went into surgery, but it's gotta really be used responsibly. And if that was your loved one, what would you want for them? And if they do meet criteria for surgery and they want it, then yeah, it's like a facelift on the pain. Uh, want, want to be able to maximize the quality and decrease the chance of a complication. Um, and that's sort of how I think about it or how the group thinks about it. But we also start to go a step further as standing up a social community. Cause let's be honest, when I think about medicine, even when it's practiced well, pretty boring. And so it's, I really view it like the airport. It's very transactional. You might love your clinician. Still, you, you might lie of the flight attendant, still relatively boring process, right? Um, and so really view evidence-based, value-based medicine as like TSA pre-check. It's way better than that other line, right? Other lines, okay, so everybody's got a water bottle, keys in their pocket, <laughs> shoes on, belt. No one's paying attention that the 4,500 people in front of them all had to take their shoes and belt off. It's just, it's just a cluster. And so TSA pre-check is much more efficient value-based medicine that, yeah, more cost-effective, yeah, more organized, yeah, more convenient, yeah. But is this something you want to do again tomorrow? No. Who's like, I can't wait to do TSA pre-check again. Can't wait. Said nobody. <laughs> and so when you start to think about medicine is, is uh, moving away, of, well, how far can you take it to drive engagement and to make it less boring? And so I think, I think there are lessons to be learned from like Peloton did Peloton really build a better treadmill or a better bike? I would argue no. They built better content in a social community to make the home gym less boring. You can throw your laptop up on your treadmill today and open YouTube. Is that Peloton? No, it's not the same thing. And so some of the health systems I see across the planet is we'll pick on, pick on Epic since they're the largest EMR is the last numbers I saw for a net promoter score in Epic was like minus 70, universally loved. <laughs> um, and so if you put you hear Zoom, that, Jake? I don't work for Epic. <laughs> so if you put Zoom or another type of uh, telemedicine interface inside of that EMR, I would sort of start to argue is did you Think you have Peloton, but you built YouTube on a treadmill. It's not the same thing. And it's not to pick on the infrastructures of things, but really, if you're going to push the experience, it's um, how far do you push engagement requires a different set of tools. 
Um, and so some of those tools will become commodities. And so the way I view it is high definition TVs are commodities nowadays. What you choose to put on it is not. Do you choose, are you putting C-SPAN on it and boring everybody? Or are you putting something pretty entertaining on ESPN or Netflix on it to engage people? And so even though you're using the same base tool. And so it's, it's, I, I think that when you think about service design is bank, banks and airports and healthcare um, has not done as well as other industries at large and really thinking about service design, which is experience, um, which is not a small nuance. Um, when you think about as, as everybody transitions to value-based care over the next several decades, or most people do, what will differentiate people if that's the new set point? Right, if, every, if everybody's value-based care and practicing appropriate medicine, because if you have appropriate medicine, you don't need utilization management because everything is agreed upon, is the things that will set the difference will be the experience, the stickiness, and then the cost. But um, cost does not mean that the patient loved it. It's yeah. just part of the solution. So let me take us in a little bit of a different direction. So we've talked a lot on this program about process improvement uh, within healthcare, within a healthcare system. Um, you have obviously done a lot of entrepreneurship entrepreneurship and looking to innovate kind of outside of traditional medical systems and practices. Uh, a lot of, you know, physicians, a lot of um, um, clinicians within healthcare, you know, find that jump really intimidating. They don't know where to start. Can you talk about kind of your journey to entrepreneurship? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Is um, I've been an entrepreneur since I can remember. Started my first company in my uh, early preteen years, and then have been in, in all sorts of these worlds, but kept those two separate. Wow, and those in the kept those mindsets separate between um, entrepreneurship and business and medicine until probably college, when you're like, well, we can blend the two together. Would actually say entrepreneurship's a mindset, um, and so um, mindset of uh, having a healthy disrespect for the status quo. Uh, we can do things better. Do we have to do these things? Or to, uh, one of the quotes um, that rings in my mind is one from Jeff Bezos is, do you own the process or does the process own you? Are you following a process just, just because somebody created it? It's like how are processes, these laws, all these things were designed by some other, other human beings and groups to fulfill a purpose at some point. That purpose might not make sense anymore, or times have evolved. Um, and so, reviewing the processes, because people get stuck and like, oh, well, this is the process, this is how we've always done it. Well, does it make sense anymore? Is that, is that relevant? And so, oftentimes, is to, uh, when you think about uh, changing things, is what makes you crazy in a typical day? Those are pain points, usually not just for you. Those are usually pain points shared by other people. And then the mindset of, do you have enough passion for those pain points to try to actually change it? Doesn't mean you have to go and start a whole company. Um, can actually have a startup inside of a health system, is, which is, here's this group who's working on this huge change management, which if it works well, we're gonna actually push it through the whole, whole health system. 
in essence, you built a small startup um, to try to change something. And then it's also um, people get into this habit. Um, you see this in all large organizations of going to meetings is not a job. Like there are professional, there's people have this, some of this mindset that going to meetings is a job. That's not a job. Um, most like most meetings at most organizations you, is you would just cross them, cross off 90% of them and you'll probably be more efficient. Um, is what is the purpose of the actual work group or meeting that you're attending? And what is the expected outcome of that meeting? In the stakeholders who come to the meeting, what is their homework? Because a lot of meetings I find that I've been asked to attend and outside organizations, you're like, the meeting finishes and there's no there's no next steps. So that so then it was just a get together. And then <laughs> there's a quarterly meeting, so then it happens again. And then nobody remembers what happened last time because there was nothing assigned. And then that happens again. And so you went through a whole year where you just talk, but then nothing actually happens because there's no organization to actually say, well, this is what we're going to do. The purpose of, is of, of this meeting is X. This is due. This person's assigned this. This person's assigned this. This person's assigned this. And it's not picking on anybody. It's like thinking back to school. If there's no deadlines, we all procrastinate. If there's no deadline, I can do it tomorrow. I can do it tomorrow, next week, two weeks from now, four weeks from now. There's no deadlines. And so one of the things that gave, gave us stress during school or actually, actually kept us on task, this paper is due in two weeks. It's due on Friday. Due. And so some small steps, even just inside of large systems, is you don't have to go change the whole wheel, is you start assigning due dates with a, just a little bit of structure and some places can just really accelerate the type of innovation they do and change management. This is due on next Friday. And you hold each other accountable. Um, but when you look at um, large organizations, sometimes there's work groups who are designed to serve a purpose, but they're not serving that purpose because there's no deadlines. And so then they have hard, hard time executing and delivering. And so then it's just sucking everybody's time up. And so we spend a lot of time on on Vori trying to change that mindset. If the meeting doesn't have a purpose, it gets deleted. Like we don't, that we, you do not have it. So what's the purpose? Who are the stakeholders? Do you need 85 people in the meeting? Like that sounds chaos, like chaos. That means you're just having a, that means you're just having an information session because you're not going to get anything done with 85 people. You look at like Apple and other groups, what, what is the efficient work groups or at Amazon? You can't have more people than two pizza serves. Yeah. Can't exceed that if you want to be efficient. That is really interesting, man. You, you, uh, you neurosurgeons are bright folks. <laughs> well, Dr. Dr. Grant, as we kind of come near the end of the podcast, I do want to have another question. You know, going back to, uh, you know, obviously this kind of, conversation, most people might label it as innovation, but within the company, um, how do you think about small steps of change? I have a friend that works at Amazon and he says a phrase they use often is fail quick, fail often, you know, and so there's that iterative process 
of this company that uh, that most of it seems to be on a visual or a virtual platform. How do you think about it constantly improving day after day, month after month? How does your mind, where does it go with that? No, it's a great question. It's um, if you don't measure it, you don't know if it's working. And so what are you measuring to know that people like it, people are getting better. Um, it's only recently in medicine that people started to follow like patient report outcomes and like, how do you know, like, how do you know things are actually working? And um, things that you don't know the answer to, something new is to, you have to test it. So lots of startup type work or process change management is here's a plan. We don't know if it's going to work or we think it's going to work because we're basing it off of what this other institution does. And so we have some a priori knowledge that we think it has a high chance of working. But now we have to test it. And so when you think about how people do change management throughout organizations or a health system, they usually start with a department or a floor. You're testing a hypothesis to sort of see, does it work? Does it not work? What's the what's the issues? And take those learnings and then either scrap it, saying, this sucks, didn't work at all, that's a learning, or this has been great, we're actually going to accelerate it and now push it across the whole enterprise. And so it's just being uh, also uh, eyes wide open, but then people also just being honest and setting expectations with your team members, not everything's going to work, and that's okay. Just like not every piece of great editorial work at the Wall Street Journal or New York Times makes it for publication. Not every scene in a movie makes it to the final cut, even though they fully rendered it. Because people do have a hard time, because um, we don't talk about it enough, is being open about emotions. We're emotional beings. Someone spends one year working really hard on a project. It's their pet project. They pull their heart and soul in it and it doesn't actually make the final cut. That person usually will have a pretty hard time if none of it's used. Because a lot of us, it's, it's the human condition. Well, if the thing I just spent a year on, nobody likes, and they think it sucks, the next step in most people's mind is, well, I must suck. And they go, they go right there. And so just recognizing and um, on the emotional intelligence that people who poured heart and soul in is and just being just talking about that that yeah it's that's normal um all of us feel that way from time to time and just acknowledging that can go a long way because we tend not to talk about that those types of things in most systems at all it's sort of don't talk about how you feel quote in the physician world is like in the surgeon world don't talk about how you feel at all you quote look weak and so there's this mentality of oh, just just keep it quiet no one will know and i which I think further contributes to burnout because it's like, well, those feelings are still there. You can keep them all repressed, but they're still there. And so you actually end up with a lot healthier work environment and actually people feeling more likely they want to innovate and psychologically safe to say, if I actually tell you what I feel, you're not going to retaliate. You do it in a respectful way, but if, the, if an institution or a group of people wants to really improve, you want as much criticism as possible. But what, what, the, what usually happens is in a hierarchy is if someone who's subordinate says something, there's usually a retaliation. 
or they're just scared to tell the tell the person above them for fear of retaliation, even if that doesn't exist. And so really building that culture of making people truly feel psychologically safe is not easy and we can always do better on it. I want to know what people don't like inside the company, what patients don't like. It's the only way we're going to make keep making things better is that if people actually surface those things. If we pretend everything is fantasy and perfect, then we're not we're living in the matrix. Well, Dr. Grant, that was fantastic. And I have really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit as as our company is talking to your company and we're looking to do some work together and just very, very thankful for you. Thank you so much for joining us today and hopefully uh, maybe you'll join us again in the future and and uh, we'll see how um, Vori Health has evolved. And uh, just want to personally on behalf of Baptist Memorial Healthcare tell you thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure, thanks for having me. Thank you, Ron. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.